0: So today I'm going to be talking about the assessment and management of lumbar degenerative conditions but focus on the three most common reasons why someone would require surgery on their lumbar spine. When you assess the patient with these complaints, you need to do a thorough history, physical exam, this will direct you to what x-rays or MRIs you may need, formulate a diagnosis and then have to come up with a therapeutic modality. After a thorough history, we examine the patient which involves inspection and palpation of the spine range of motion of the lumbar spine, a thorough neurological exam of the lower and upper extremities, any tension signs or straight leg raise exam, do a thorough vascular exam but also examine the other areas of the lower extremities including the hips and knees which can be confused with radiating leg pain. Once you perform your physical exam this may lead you to obtain regular or plain radiographs or x-rays done in the office or MRI of the lumbar spine, which can show you more of the disc issue, herniated discs, or any kind of neural compression. Sometimes we need to order a CAT scan if patients cannot undergo an MRI, and once in a while we actually order bone scans as well. The most common radiographs are x-rays followed by MRI. The goal is to return patients as fast as possible back to their original functional status. We don't want to order too many studies so we want to practice the efficient use of diagnostic studies. We want to avoid unnecessary treatments or interventions but we also want to avoid missing treatable diagnoses. When someone comes to the office with a lumbar condition with leg pain, this can be from other issues as well including arthritic conditions of the knee and hip, vascular disorders, sometimes back pain can be from a visceral disorder, GYN and GU disorders, And we also have to remember psychological issues as well. The treatment modalities that we often use include bed rest, which is usually a short period of time, one to two days, exercise, acupuncture, different medications including anti-inflammatory medication, pain medication, and muscle relaxants, as well as oral corticosteroids, physical therapy, injection therapy, and spinal manipulation. Few conditions actually require surgery. Once we have our diagnosis, there are three conditions that often can be ameliorated with surgery. We're going to discuss disc herniation in the lumbar spine, lumbar spinal stenosis, and stenosis with a spondylolisthesis. We have to remember that asymptomatic subjects often have an abnormal MRI. And this chart shows the age group, and you can each put yourself in the age group that you belong and see how many people that have no symptoms in their back or radiation down their leg have an abnormal MRI? So we have to keep this in mind that we treat patients and then we use the MRI to help us formulate a diagnosis and treatment. Number one, herniated lumbar disc. When someone presents to the office with a lumbar disc herniation that's symptomatic, it usually produces unilateral sciatica or one-sided leg pain. This could be numbness, tingling, weakness, or pain. Leg pain is usually worse than the back pain. It follows a dermatomal distribution, which is usually L4 or L5 or S1. Oftentimes, patients will have a neurotension sign or a straight leg raise, and when you bring the leg out, it produces pain shooting down the leg, and that is a positive neurotension sign. Here you can see an axial MRI that shows a disc herniation in the canal towards the right. Impinging the nerve. A normal or the most common form of a herniated disc in the lumbar spine usually herniates in what we call the postural lateral position, which is in this location. Here you can see a sagittal and axial MRI that shows a herniated disc where the white arrow is towards the right. Now that the MRI is red, and actually the left side what you're looking at is the right side because the patient is taking the MRI in a supine position. So here you see a herniation at L5-S1 towards the right, and the accompanying sagittal view on your left with the purple arrow shows the herniated disc. Fortunately, most people get better within three months, 75% and 40% in the first month. Usually, we perform non-operative management of a herniated disc for at least six to 12 weeks. We can treat the patient with either physical therapy in combination with medications, anti-inflammatory, oral medication including steroids and muscle relaxants, chiropractic care, or epidural steroid injections. Patients usually improve within this time period. Patients that fail this treatment or intractable leg pain or neurologic deficit that is not improving, sometimes surgery is performed sooner than within the 6 to 12 week period of time. It is also important to note that if patients have leg pain and symptoms for more than six months, they may not benefit from surgery as well due to the fact that they had compression on the nerve for six months. So the best window is in between 6 and 12 weeks and before six months. The patients that do best with surgery usually have three criteria. One is a tension sign or a positive straight leg raise, which means that the nerve is being trapped by the herniation in the spine. Two a neurologic deficit, or at least numbness, tingling, or pain following that nerve distribution, as well as a decrease in a reflex or strength. And also having an MRI that shows the herniation that correlates to the symptoms uh, in the patient. The patients that have all three of these criteria are the best surgical candidates. So let's reiterate. The perfect surgical candidate for a lumbar discectomy, which we call microdiscectomy. Symptoms with leg pain, more than back pain, for greater than six weeks. Failing conservative treatment, which we have mentioned, having a positive tension sign or straight leg raise, a correlative neurologic deficit, numbness, tingling, pain, weakness, or decreased reflex, an MRI that shows the herniation, and no secondary gain. Patients that undergo surgery have a 90 to 90% good to short term results at two to four years with surgery. Failures of undergoing a discectomy for herniation are patients that have back pain worse than leg pain, a paucity of objective data, meaning not much symptomatology down the extremity, depression litigation, and workers' compensation. A sport trial that looked at disc herniations published in the Journal of American Medical Association looked at patients with herniated discs and unilateral sciatica. They had 500 patients across the United States and they randomized the patients to undergo either surgery to remove the herniation versus non-surgical care. There was some crossover between the two groups but mostly the patients that were put in the non-surgical group with severe leg pain ended up crossing over into the surgical group. And what they found was, if you look at the bottom part of the slide, that at two years and even three months, the patients that underwent surgery actually felt better than non-operatively. Although the patients at two years that did not undergo surgery actually felt Better. There was a 9% re operation rate in the surgical group for re herniation. Number two, lumbar spinal stenosis. The definition of stenosis is compression of nerves. The definition of spondylolisthesis means. Forward slippage of one vertebrae on another. So, the conditions we're going to discuss are lumbar stenosis by itself and lumbar spinal stenosis with degenerative spondylolysthesis. Two very common lumbar degenerative conditions. Lumbar spinal stenosis. This is usually seen in the older population. Patients suffer from what's known as neurogenic claudication, which is pains in the legs and tiredness with walking. A third of patients do develop radicular pain, which is radiation of pain down the leg. It's usually worse with walking, but you have to keep in mind that these patients also have a high incidence of other comorbidities, including vascular issues. The spinal cord does not go all the way down to the lumbar spine. It ends at the L12 disc space. Below L12 is what's known as the cauda equina, which is actually nerves that are in the canal but do not encompass the spinal cord. When someone suffers from lumbar stenosis, it's compression of these nerve rootlets and not the spinal cord, which you would get in the cervical or thoracic spine, and this is what happens with lumbar spinal stenosis. So you can see on the left, the spinal cord is in that large oval, ending at the L12 disc space, and then the cauda or lumbar nerve roots are in the oval towards the right. And this is what gets compressed in lumbar spinal stenosis. People that are suffering from lumbar spinal stenosis often have back pain, neurogenic claudication, which leads to difficulty ambulating, especially with extension or walking. They need to lean on a shopping cart to relieve their symptoms. The reason why is when you flex your spine forward, you're actually opening up the canal where the nerves are present, taking pressure off of them and giving you temporary relief. This is a cadaveric specimen showing lumbar spinal stenosis. This is the sac of nerves that's supposed to be circular squeezed from arthritis from facet joints, disc bulging, and ligamentum hypertrophy. This is a side view showing a degenerated disc and the nerve in the foramen being pinched. When someone's suffering from spinal stenosis, we often obtain regular x-rays, AP and lateral, and an MRI. And here you can see the signs of lumbar spinal stenosis. The canal is where the yellow arrow is, and now you have three areas of neural compression. We often start with conservative treatment for this, including flexion-based exercises, which opens up the canal to relieve the compression on the nerves, chiropractic care, medications, activity modification, and epidural steroid injections. When these fail, or do not provide enough relief, then surgery is the next option. And it's called a lumbar decompression or laminectomy. When you perform a laminectomy, you need to open up the central area, but also on the sides, called the lateral recess. And you can see when you undergo surgery, everything in the blue box needs to be removed in order to take pressure off of the nerve rootlets. What's important here is that if the patient does not have a spondylolisthesis, they do not require a fusion procedure, just the laminectomy. When someone undergoes a laminectomy for symptomatic spinal stenosis, the results are 85 to 90% good to excellent results. Again, leg pain responds better than back pain because we're not fusing the spine or getting rid of all the arthritis in the disc spaces, but taking pressure off the nerves that radiate down the legs. Here is a axial MRI showing the stenosis in the middle of the canal and the nerves are in a triangle when they should be in a big circle. Now, there's been a sport trial also like there was for discectomy for lumbar spinal stenosis. Almost 300 patients were randomized to either undergo surgery, which is a decompressive laminectomy without a fusion versus non-operative care. Again, there was some crossover. What the researchers that there was a 9% reoperation rate in the patients that had surgery over a two-year period of time, but there was a major improvement in the surgical group far greater than in the non-surgical group at two years. Here is a preoperative axial MRI on the left, which is normal, showing the sac of nerves, which are the little dots with cerebral spinal fluid, and now a symptomatic stenosis patient where you can see the nerves are being compressed. Normal stenosis. Our last condition we're going to talk about is going to take this one step further. Patients suffering from lumbar stenosis with a degenerative spondylolisthesis, which is very common. And and spondylolisthesis means one vertebrae slipping on top of another. And you can see, if I draw my arrow down, there's a step-off here. So this is L4 spondylolisthesis on top of L5 as this is the sacrum. Clinical findings are the same in patients that suffer from stenosis alone. Back pain, neurogenic claudication, difficulties with ambulation. Imaging studies include plain radiographs, myelogram and CAT scans in patients that cannot undergo an MRI, and MRI. What's important is flexion extension radiographs, which you can actually see the spondylolisthesis on the flexion view. Treatment again is conservative with exercise, chiropractic care, medications, injections, and bracing. When this doesn't work, the treatment is the same as it was with a laminectomy for stenosis, but now you have instability from the spondylolisthesis and that needs to be addressed surgically as well. Therefore, the surgical treatment is decompressional laminectomy but now with a fusion procedure. So the surgery involves, again, decompressing the central canal, the lateral recess, and the foramen where the nerves come out. And this is actually a live specimen that shows the sac of nerves with the nerves extending from the sides. Again, three areas need to be surgically decompressed. Centrally, lateral recess, and the foramen. SPORT did a study on this as well, as I've mentioned earlier with the other two surgical procedures. They randomized patients into undergoing a laminectomy and a fusion versus non-operative care. Again, there was some crossover in the two groups. And what the researchers found, that once somebody is suffering from symptomatic spinal stenosis and spondylolisthesis, at the two-year post-operative mark, there was a greater improvement in the surgical group versus non surgical and it was significant 74% versus 24 so outcomes for three common lumbar degenerative conditions which i spoke about today including symptomatic lumbar disc herniation lumbar stenosis and lumbar stenosis with a spondylolisthesis When patients fail all conservative treatment, do very well with surgical intervention. This is Pennsylvania Hospital, which is actually the first and oldest hospital in the United States, built by Benjamin Franklin. They actually perform surgery at the top between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. under sunlight. Thank you.